welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. You'll recall that with the end of our last episode, I began to discuss the reality of angels in my creation, how I created them before you, how I created them to help you and point you to me, not for you to worship them or obsess about them, which is why I mention them so very infrequently in Tom. But they are in there and they are a part of the story, so let's spend a few minutes unpacking their flavors. Here are a few distinctions of angel classification. The seraphim are the most powerful and have the greatest access and proximity to me. They are always beside me. Each has got three sets of wings, and their voices shake the foundation of heaven itself. They could have rugged good looks or faces like gargoyles. They cover their faces with one set of wings the only time a human, my prophet Isaiah, catches a glimpse of them. That's in Isaiah 6. Then there are the cherubim, which, once again, you've got the wrong picture of. Somehow, the fiction of Cupid got crossed with cherub. Uh, remember, an I-M ending makes things plural in Hebrew. And you've got tons of paintings of chubby baby angels scooting around on tiny wings that are supposedly cherubim. Wrong. In fact, opposite of the truth, really. For one thing, there are no baby angels. They are all ageless, created in their fully grown state, and their number is fixed. They're not over here having families. There's no marriage in heaven, angel, human, or otherwise, and no new offspring. This, of course, makes some of you feel a bit sad, but I know others of you are secretly relieved. In every instance in which I allow you to catch a glimpse of angels, and in stark contrast to the bare-butted babies you've erroneously mislabeled, the cherubim, like the seraphim, are examples of my tremendous and terrible power. They are the noble angels depicted upon the Ark of the Covenant, whose huge wings converge as the mercy seat upon which my presence rests which I have Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones to thank for your knowledge of more than your reading of Exodus 24. Now, the cherubim wings are huge, especially when the smaller scale of the arc lid is considered. The recurrence of wings on two angel flavors, the seraphim and the cherubim, is the understandable source of your rather cartoonish sense of all angels. Obviously, some do sport wings, but not all. Those sent to speak to humans don't. They're frightening enough, as it is. Solomon will place two great 15-foot-tall cherubim statues, each of them with a 10-foot wingspan, within the temple as symbols of my might. That's in 1 Kings 6. Ezekiel will witness cherubim that possess multiple sets of wings and a quadratic head holding four faces, angel, human, lion, and eagle. That's in Ezekiel 10. 
Yes, there's symbolism in all that, but let's not get bogged down in angelology. Remember, they're pointing you to me. We are not going to provide play-by-play -play coverage of their interactions as the owner's manual goes along. Of course, we'll relay highlights. That's why you know they're there. But in most cases, their work will go on behind the scenes you perceive without mention or with only bare cryptic reference, such in Second Samuel 5, 24. Extra points if you look that up. Because the owner's manual isn't about them. It's about you and me. But at first, you weren't around yet as an individual or a race or even a dimension. Though we knew you were coming even back then, for a while there it was just us and the angels, and we poured out the same love while we made them as we lathered on you when we made you. Each of them is a unique combination of personality, ability, strength, weakness, purpose, and so on. As magnificent an achievement as they may be, though, they represent only the first stage of our creation project, created with a view toward you and the rest of the plan, to which it's high time we return. Now, in further evidence of our earlier mention that at times a reference to an angel who's representing me shifts to language that sounds like I myself am there, this is what happens where we left off with Joshua. The most marked time previously of this tandem reference phenomenon was our epic encounter with Moses at the burning bush, and it is precisely because of this that the same thing happens here. We are still solidifying Joshua's identity, to him and to everyone else, as our chosen successor to Moses, and this episode more than any other confirms this with its resonance and direct reference to our call of Moses back at our mountain forty-something years ago. The phrase that locks it all in and turns all the significance on is uttered by the warrior who says, Remove your sandals, Joshua, for this is holy ground. Holy ground? Holy cow! If Moses told Joshua the burning bush story once, he told it a hundred times. And so in this moment, Joshua knows far beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am right there, right now, and ready for battle at the head of my own army of angelic warriors. The text reflects this with the next sentence, attributed no longer to the commander of Yahweh's army, but to me, myself, and I. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. That's Joshua 5.15. So when I tell him how I want to handle Jericho, he's all ears and doesn't raise the slightest question over my plan of attack, though it be the least conventional and seemingly least effective battle plan ever to be raised outside a playground. The surprise of a sneak attack is obviously not an option. It's no secret that Israel is camped on the plains below Jericho. After having crossed the Jordan in so spectacular a fashion, the whole neighborhood knows we are here, which, as we intimated, was our intention all along. Consequently, Jericho is sealed up tighter than a barren womb, 
And just as I've opened the barren in the past to show my glory, so will I open the sealed city. Here comes the fun part, our first official choreography. We're in too much of a hurry to move the Abraplan forward to wait for a long, drawn-out siege of Jericho. Most of you already know what I have in mind. Once again, my command to Joshua as to how to go about capturing the city lays the groundwork for yet another Yahweh moment. With what I am going to have Israel do as a means to conquer the famously impervious walled city, the only way victory is even close to possible is if there's some supernatural, read my, intervention. It's been years since you heard the story, so let me refresh your memory. I tell Joshua to have his army march around the perimeter of Jericho once each day for a week. Now, we're tracking with Joshua 6 now. Behind the army are to march seven priests, each bearing a trumpet made from a ram's horn. It'll be quite some time before a habitat comes along that twists brass into the shape you're thinking of as a trumpet. These babies here are as organic as a trumpet can get. I'll take up the position of honor in the parade, riding on my ark with a rear guard of warriors behind. Nobody shooting any arrows or inventing any catapults. All they're going to do is take a single trip around the city each morning. The only ones doing anything besides walking, and maybe looking menacingly at enemy sentries atop the wall, are the seven priests. They're blowing their trumpets for the duration of the march, except for the times they have to take a breath so they can blow their horn again. One trip around, then call it a day and head back to camp. So passes the same pattern every morning for the first six days. On the seventh day, things change. But before we get there, Pardon my pointing out the obvious here, the number seven is again making an appearance in the Abra plan. Once again, where do we find the first seven? Say it with me now, creation, as in, I made everything in seven days. Well, not quite. I made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. The first day seven looked a lot different from day six. The work of the universe was finished on day six, and the new era of life started on day seven. Same here, only this time I do my work on the seventh day. But once again, day seven is the game changer. The seventh day of the Jericho campaign starts the same as the first through sixth. But instead of finishing after once around the city, the parade continues six more laps until a nicely symbolic seventh circuit is complete. The seventh time around on the seventh day is the moment that clinches a new era, just as my first seven signaled a whole new reality as a significant page is turned in the Abra plan. As you can imagine, the daily parade has become quite the focus of attention from inside the city. The residents of Jericho have gone from fear at the first promenade, remember, in the very least, they know about my penchant for holding back large bodies of water and are wondering what I'm up to, but by the end of the week, 
Jericho is bored with the seeming non-event of a daily horn-blowing march. The novelty wore off around day four when the same thing seemed to be happening over and over. Imagine, then, how things feel on day seven. The building excitement and fear when the pattern shifts and something new is clearly happening, even though at first the something new seems only to be a longer parade than usual? One could even imagine a good number of people gathering atop the city walls to watch the spectacle unfold below, only to have the wall unfold beneath their feet in a few moments. Once the ark, bringing up the rear, finishes the seventh and final trip around the city, there is a moment of stunned silence as Israel and Jericho survey each other from their respective positions. Then Joshua gives the signal, and the trumpeters take the biggest breath of their lives. They've had a good deal of practice this week, and they blow the loudest, strongest, longest blast they can muster. Still just a slight variation on the entire week's activities, but then comes the clincher moment. As I commanded him to, Joshua has told all the people to keep their mouths shut all week until this moment. At Joshua's command now, though, they holler their guts out at the city, raising a tremendous battle cry at the top of their lungs that strikes fear into every enemy heart, which is only multiplied when the walls crumble. In your habitat, you'd think it was a, a building demolition, those times where strategic explosives are fired within a structure in order to bring it straight down into its own footprint. Only explosives haven't been invented yet. Now, there are all kinds of people who've worked up theories about vibration bringing the walls down. Uh, the same folks, by the way, that think a big wind blew the tons of water in the entire Red Sea out of the way, though somehow the much lighter humans and livestock were able to walk upright through the gale. The only real clue you've got about the wall's demise is that it must have had something to do with the army of Yahweh, which was introduced to the scene back in Joshua 5. Only this wall implosion seems to be more like the work of an army corps of engineers than of warriors. Once again, when it comes to miracles, friend, you can try and figure out an angelic action sequence or work on all the other theories you want to in terms of how my creation happened to sync up at just the right moment to have my desired outcome. But in the end, the only answer you're left with is me. I did it. And the walls, they come a-tumbling down, on the way to fulfilling my plan to rescue every one of you. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. 
Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.